You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Well, good morning, Mill Creek. My name is David, one of the pastors here. It's a delight to be able to gather with you this Labor Day weekend. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from 1 Timothy chapter 2, reading verses 1 to 7. You can find it in the black Bibles that you may find in the seatbacks around you in front of you on page 932, or it's on the back of the sermon teaching notes perhaps you picked up on the way in. Uh, I want to acknowledge, hey, we've, uh, we've got some uh, wonderful special guests here in the room before we read our passage today. Uh, some younger friends who are here, so grateful to have uh, the, the kids from the kids ministry being here as we worship together. It's a delight for people of all ages, we think, to be in the one room together, sitting on the teaching of God's word together. And so... Uh, we're, we expect some people to get a little excited or a little, uh, you know, if there's things the next couple of minutes, we're like, hey, there's some noises. It's okay. They're supposed to be here. We want them here. We're so glad to have you kids here, the younger kids. And so thank you for being here with us. Absolutely, Marvin. Thank you. What a, de- what a delight it is. So if you're newer to Mill Creek, we'd love to get a chance to meet you as well. We uh, look for opportunities to be able to connect with each other. But this morning, we have the delight of being uh, taught by one of our, uh, our pastoral assistant, Matt Gonzalez. We're excited for Matt to bring the teaching this morning from Second Timothy, or First Timothy chapter 2. And uh, yeah, Second Timothy, Matt, would you jump in real quick? Just make it up as you go. Something new here. So First Timothy chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 to 7 here. Would you please follow along as we read the word of the Lord together today? Verse 1 says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me at this time? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be gathered in this place this morning to sit under the teaching of your word. Thank you that we get to place ourselves under its authority. We ask now that you would allow us to do the hard work of, of listening well, of learning well, of leaning into what you would have for us to hear and apply in our lives today. Pray for Matt. Pray that you give him clarity and joy as he teaches at this time. We pray this in your name, dear Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, David. Well, good morning. As Pastor David so kindly said, my name is Matt Gonzalez, our pastoral assistant here. It's so good to be with you all, especially fun to see our K-5 through kids. Glad to have you all here. It's going to be fantastic as we study the Word of God together this morning. It was 1948. And the continent of Europe stood on the brink of war. Russia, this huge empire, had expanded across the continent and completely surrounded and cut off was the city of Berlin. Now, the city was being starved into submission by the Russians. They were strangling off any way to get supplies and 
food in. And so the nations of the world saw the need of the city of Berlin, and they put a plan in place. And over the next 15 months, over 189,000 flights flew over the city of Berlin, dropping a whopping 2.3 million tons of supplies and food. And all of those efforts worked to keep the city of Berlin both alive and hopeful. It also ultimately worked in that the Russians backed off of the city and allowed it to be saved. And what would become known as the Berlin Airlift is considered to be one of the most impressive events of the 20th century. It's crazy that we managed to pull that off. And I'm convinced it actually paints a beautiful picture for God's heart for prayer in the church. That we as well, just like they were, would be engaged in a mission of hope and of life to people who were facing destruction. Now, if you've been with us over the past several weeks, awesome. If you haven't been, let me catch us up. We've been working through the book of 1 Timothy and examining God's blueprint for a strong church. What does it look like for God's people to do church? At the beginning of the book, we touched on the importance and the centrality of the gospel to the life of a church. Over the past two weeks, we've looked at the dangers of false doctrine and how quickly they can sink a church. And this week, we arrive at prayer, of all things. It feels a little weird that we would go from the gospel to false doctrine to prayer. But that's... What is in the text today, and I do want to set our expectation, this is not an exhaustive guide to every single type of way to pray and reason to pray and thing to pray for today. That's not what our text gives us, but what it is, is a profound challenge to our heart about prayer and our heart specifically for prayer for the lost. It's going to be instruction to all of us from the kid to the student to the grown-ups in the room as We look at these, and we'll look at God's blueprint for the church through three questions as we're working through this. You may have it in your sermon handout. If not, we'll we'll jump through these as we go. First, we're going to be asking, how do we pray? Then we'll be examining together, who are we then supposed to pray for? And we'll finish our time today by looking at, why do we pray in the first place? What's, What's the point? And as we look at that first question of, how do we pray? We're going to move quickly to get our bearings and kind of see the big picture of the passage because that first question will serve as a lens for us through which we can see the rest of Paul's instruction. Now, I'll warn you, we're going to bounce around and move quickly, so note takers, prepare to have pins that are on fire for a moment. We're going to fly over those three pieces of of the big picture how-to. So, without further ado, let's look at that together. How do we pray, church? Our instruction, actually, before we even get to the text, comes from the context of our passage. Because if you'll remember with me, this is not written as instructions to you specifically or me specifically. No, this letter of 1 Timothy is being written to the church at Ephesus and its leader, Timothy. And so often when we read instruction in the scriptures about prayer, we think, how can I work this into my life? And we think of prayer as an individual undertaking. If we do that here, we actually completely miss the heart of the Apostle Paul, the heart of our passage this morning. These are instructions on corporate church prayer. 
how we as a body are to gather together and to pray. And for some of us, praying as a church, it's nothing, nothing new. But for others of us, this is brand new. And so how do we pray first and foremost from our context? We pray together. We pray together. That's a core piece of our worship as a church is prayer together. And so again, as we're moving through, how do we pray? This is how are we to pray together, right? So like I said, moving quickly, that's our first piece. We pray together. And for the second piece of our big idea, how do we pray? Look with me at the first verse of our passage. And we see it right from the Apostle Paul. He says, first of all, then. So what do we see? We pray together and we pray first. Pray first. Now when we hear that, as an American organized culture, we celebrate because we have been given a list. There's a list and not quite. So this isn't going to be a one, two, three that the Apostle Paul gives us over the next few sections. What he's actually saying is, hey, first of all, most important, primary, pray. If we're using the analogy of a building, right, we understand that the gospel is the foundation of the building, the foundation of the church. Prayer, then, serves as the framework of the church, the bones within the building that hold everything else together. And just as plumbing and electrical work cannot function in a house without a frame to support them, so too the life of a church cannot work without prayer. Now, in that, we don't just pray in a general sense. We don't just offer a prayer for a meal here and there and say, man, we've got the framework of the church in place. Now, we are actually called to pray specific, focused prayers with purpose. In other words, our last piece of this big idea, friends, we are to pray intentionally, with intention to our prayers. Now, look with me at verse 1. This is where we get this idea from. Paul says, I urge that prayers and supplications and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. He's not just saying that we're to pray for food or safety on trips or scary medical procedures that we may be going through, though those are not inherently bad things to pray for. They're just not in focus here. Now, most commentators actually agree that the Apostle Paul is calling out the church at Ephesus for their lack of prayerfulness, that they have stopped praying. And he's encouraging them not only to pray together to pray first, but to pray intentionally. Because church, we are to pray with a specific purpose, and that purpose has an impact on how we pray. If, for instance, in 1948, pilots had decided to just fly around the city of Berlin for no reason, we'd be reading in our history books about the Berlin Air Show, not the Berlin Air Lift. Now, their actions had a purpose, and so too must our prayers. Okay, that's, that's it. That's the big idea for us. And some of you are going, this is nothing new. Okay, this is nothing groundbreaking. The kids in the room are saying, Cindy and the crew teach us this like every Sunday. Can we have something significant, Matt? I hear you, but let's remember, the big picture understanding of praying together first and intentionally paints the entire rest of the way we read this passage. So we've got to get that. And now from the understanding of how we are supposed to pray, that we need to pray together, 
to pray first, to pray intentionally, we can lock in on our other questions, such as, who then are we supposed to intentionally pray for? And why do we pray in the first place? We're going to spend the rest of our time diving into those ideas. Lock in with me. This is crucial for all believers. And with that, let's look at our next question together. So we've seen how we should pray. Let's ask, who do we then pray for? The end of verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this in here. It's, it's wonderful, right? He says, All people. I urge that prayers and supplications and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. So church, who do we pray for? All people. Now that idea can feel extremely broad. You may be thinking, Matt, I don't have time to pray for 8.1 billion human beings individually on my lunch break. Thank you. No, thank you. And if we read that at face value, we can actually skim right past it. I've done it so many times. But if we stop to consider what that actually means, that we're supposed to pray for all people, for everyone, for all types of people. It's not just every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, though praise God, that is the case. Someone in the jungle that we've not even discovered yet. But it's also people and parties. It's those who live near us and live around us. And when we hear that, our gut reaction may be to go, oh, surely not. Surely not that person. Surely not that person. And whoever you may think of when I say that person, yes, them too. That coworker you can't stand, that neighbor who drives you crazy, that classmate who's always on your nerves, teammate who always gets in the way, or the family member who has hurt you deeply. Yes, people of all kinds are covered. And the Apostle Paul doesn't give us some sort of excuse or exemption for anyone who may annoy us or who may have hurt us, who may despise us and ultimately who may persecute us. And in a broader sense, it also doesn't exclude those who may look different from us, speak differently than we do, who may behave in ways we don't like or disagree with, who may live lifestyles that run counter to God's will, or who may vote differently than we do. We are to pray for all of those people. And friends, if we think that's hard, remember with me the context that the Apostle Paul is writing into. Right? This Ephesian church is suffering active persecution for their faith. Their neighbors had turned on them. Some of these Christians had suffered physical attack and had lost property as a result of this persecution. So this is no small ask for them either. Timothy was fighting battles within the church itself. No small ask for him. And as if that wasn't enough, the Apostle Paul just decides to crank it up even more for us in verse 2. Look there with me. It says, pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Just twisting that knife, Paul. He ratchets up the stakes. Who are we to pray for? All people. And friends, we also pray for leaders. We pray for leaders. Now, for the Ephesian church, that would have meant governors and officials and ultimately the emperor of Rome. Some of those people who had actually worked to protect the church, others of them were killing Christians and working out the active persecution of God's people. So again, no easy ask from the Apostle Paul. 
And for us, that may mean mayors and governors and senators and presidents. Government leaders are in focus in this passage, and we have to understand, friends, there can be no antagonism, no us versus them between the church and the government. That's not a thing. But I'm actually convinced this starts on a smaller scale for each of us. While, yes, government leaders are in focus, I think the way that we interact with leaders who are closer to us trickles up to leaders who are much higher over us, and it drastically impacts our heart toward them. And so the leader you may be actually struggling with and kind of projecting up the line may be your boss. For some of us, it may be an HOA president we can't stand. For kids and for students, it may be a parent or a teacher. Yes, friends, we're supposed to pray for leaders who may be unkind, who may be cold, who may not do a good job, who may make decisions that we disagree with, who may be from this party or that party, who may be immoral in their office or position, and who may hate the things of God and promote the things that God calls evil. Yes, we pray for them. Because, friends, our first instinct, isn't it, is so often to get angry. I fear that in the midst of our anger, we've missed that we should be brokenhearted for these people who are far from God. Consider with me. Are we angrier about the things that people and leaders do than we are prayerfully heartbroken on their behalf? Because if we don't pray for them, if we don't offer their names before the Lord of glory, Friends, who will? And within Paul's direction, maybe the question for us as a church is this. Who are we not praying for? Who are the people that we have let bad blood or difference of opinion make us bitter toward? And is the greatest barrier to our obedience from this text to pray for all people, our own hard-heartedness and bitterness Now, let's, let's admit, the Apostle Paul has given the Ephesians, he's given Timothy, and by result, he's given us a lot to chew on. That's not an easy idea for us to swallow. The Apostle Paul's instructed and challenged us on how we are to pray. He's hit us really hard on who we're supposed to pray for. And remember with me that prayer is the framework of the church. So we should be asking, what's the purpose of that prayer? What's the heart we're supposed to have? Because if you're anything like me, I can do the right thing in the right ways with the wrong motives day after day after day. So it's such a gift that the rest of the passage paints the big picture of why we pray. And let's look at that together with the rest of our time. So why do we pray? Look with me at, at the end of verse 2. Apostle Paul says, so that, we pray for leaders and all these people, so that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So we see a key purpose of our prayer is so that our lives can display the gospel. So that our lives can display the gospel. And friends, I have to admit, when I'm praying, that is not the life I'm praying for. I struggle with that. 
And you may be like me. I think our culture pushes this, that we really want to lead, lead exciting and comfortable lives, awesome and successful in every way. And that's not the same thing. We should desire lives. We should pray for situations that promote lives, that primarily put the gospel on display. We are to pray as well that we would have leaders who would support that, who would allow that, so that those around us can see our lives as a testimony to the truth. Maybe that's where you need to do business this morning. Because I fear that we often forget our purpose, the even greater idea behind lives that display the gospel, the need that's present even in that. As friends, we don't just pray that we would live lives that display the gospel. No, we live lives that display the gospel because the lost need salvation. And that is why we pray. The lost need salvation. Verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, This is good, meaning both praying for all people and living lives that display the gospel. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who, verse 4, desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Is, is that our heart, friends? Is, is that your heart? Are we broken for the lostness of the world and so driven to our knees on their behalf? Because that's God's heart. I do want to acknowledge the elephant in the middle of this passage for a moment. Because for some of us, we may say, okay, well, God can't desire that everyone would be saved because I know not everyone will be saved. And we can actually end up being hesitant in our prayers because the math doesn't work out for us. Or maybe someone else may be tempted with being passive in our prayers because, well, if God says it, it's going to happen, right? Or others of us may even be tempted with universalism, that it's all going to buff out somehow in the end. And that's not even Christianity. An answer to the person who may be feeling hesitant in their prayers, friend, remember the heart of God. That all people would be saved, that salvation would come to the world. And we are not the judges of who can or who will be saved. No, our job is to pray earnestly that God would do the work that he would see his will done, that he would save people. And if you're the one struggling with hesitancy, friend, repent of your hesitancy and get in the game. Pray for the lost. To the person who may be struggling with being passive, it's the same call as the one who's struggling with being hesitant. Repent of being passive and get in the game. Respond to the command of Scripture. And for those who may be dealing with universalism, it's all going to buff out somehow in the end. Let's appreciate that while the text does clearly say all people, we need to understand the heart and the reality behind that. Because the ultimate answer to universalism is really this, friends. We pray because Christ is the only way. God does desire that all people would be saved, but there is a catch, so to say, an anchor for us, Verse 5, look there. Paul says, There is but one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There is but one way to salvation. There's 
No other name, Acts 4 teaches us, no other name by which we may be saved. Romans 10.9 teaches that it is belief in our hearts and confession of that belief. That is where salvation comes from. But it is only in Jesus Christ. Now God does love the world. And he does desire its salvation. And that is why Christ Jesus came. And friends, he is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. There's no hope in anyone else. The beauty of verse 6 is that we learn this is not some accident. No, this is the testimony actually given at the proper time, says the Apostle Paul. God's plan A from the beginning of the world, all the way back from the beginning of the book of Genesis, it's been pointing to salvation in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, the Savior of the world. This is not some fluke. No, this is the plan of God Almighty. It's his will. Let's appreciate that many have and many will reject life in Christ Jesus. And let us also remember, friends, that judgment is coming on sin. Those two things exist together. And they should drive us to our knees on behalf of those who do not know Jesus. Or if we've forgotten how desperate humanity is for a Savior... Have we forgotten how desperate we are for a Savior? Friends, we must remember that the heart of the mission of the church is God's heart for the salvation of the world if we're to pray like we should. We must remember why we exist and remember that our foundation is the gospel of Christ Jesus. Upon the rock of Jesus, we stand or fall. And we as the church have been entrusted with the gospel mission. And it begins with our prayer. It begins with hearts that are broken for those who don't know Jesus. It begins with a recognition of the need for the Lord to do the work. Verse 7 jumps in here. It's not just a throwaway line at the end where Paul puts something in parentheses. Look there with me. Paul says, no, trust me, Timothy. Trust me, Ephesian church. Make no mistake. It is the power of Christ's gospel. That is why I came to you in the first place. That is why you do what you do. That is why you have life in the first place. It's the gospel of Jesus. And verse 7 affirms the importance of the gospel message and the need to take that message of hope to the lost. And in that mission, remember with me, friends, prayer is primary. Prayer is first. It's not last or 87th. It's first. Paul also tells us that that this gospel has gone out to all peoples. It's gone out to the Gentile nations, to the Greeks like Timothy and the Ephesians. And we know from hindsight it's gone out even further than that to nations around them through centuries across continents and oceans to us today. Let us remember, friends, that Christians of today, we are the result of countless generations of faithful churches' prayer. We walk in the legacy of churches like those in Ephesus, the legacy of countless believers who have gone before us. And we have a responsibility to carry on that legacy, to take the gospel to the lost and to pray for their salvation. Friends, we get to participate participate in the greatest rescue mission of all time that makes the Berlin airlift look like absolute child's play. What a blessed gift 
and a humbling responsibility for us. Now, I do want to acknowledge the whack-a-mole effect that can happen in sermons like this, in passages like this, of do better, get better, be better. Let's take the load off a little bit because that's not the heart of God. That's not the call of Paul. It's not why I'm preaching to you today. Now, we do need to appreciate, we need to acknowledge there is an absolute call to action and a challenge to our hearts here. But there's also a call to remember Remember God's heart for salvation. To remember that the lost need Jesus. To remember that the gospel saved us, church. That God, through his gospel, saved us. And to remember that when we pray, God works. We may be left, even then, with the difficulty of asking, what do I do with that? Like, I feel that the Spirit is prompting me in some way, but I'm not sure what to actually do, what to, what to move with that. Maybe that's you. And while I'm not the Holy Spirit and I can't tell each of us where we are being prompted, I can point us in some helpful directions that may help get the ball rolling for you. And we'll look at those as we close our time. First and foremost, friends, we need to begin to pray with other believers if we're not. We need to find time to pray with other believers within the church especially, within our families especially. For a kid or for a student, maybe for you, your job then is to bring your friends who don't know Jesus to your family so that you can pray for them together. Maybe you volunteer to pray. Maybe that's a kid's ministry Sunday morning class or a student ministry Wednesday night small group for you. Maybe for all of us, this can begin at lunch after service. But for all of us, the place I will direct you first and foremost is actually here. It's the gathered worship service where believers come together and worship the Lord. Make no mistake, friends. You cannot be a part of the prayers of the church if you are not a part of the church. So maybe the commitment for us is to commit to being here regularly. And if you are already here regularly, to commit to continuing that and investing in the church, to continue praying with other believers here. That's foundational. It's essential for the life of a believer. That's the baseline. Maybe for another person, you're going, okay, I got that. So maybe for you, it's our prayer nights every month. The second Tuesday of the month, we have a group of people from Mill Creek who gather in this room. And yes, they pray for the needs of the church, but they also pray for our neighbors and the nations, those who don't know Jesus. Good news, we've actually got months ahead scheduled out on those in our monthly snapshots in the commons. Spoiler alert, the next one's next Tuesday at 7 p.m. We'd love to see you there. Maybe for someone else, you're like, okay, prayer night's cool. Maybe you need to get into a life group. Maybe you just need to begin to do life with other believers here at Mill Creek. Or maybe if you're in a life group, what that looks like is your life group needs to begin to pray together and to pray for the lost together. That's a huge piece of it. Or maybe for someone else, I hope for all of us, you're not only feeling prompted to pray for the lost, but you are feeling the movement of the Lord in your heart that you are challenged to take the gospel to the lost, to actually do the work. And first and foremost in that, I will point you to our Gardner church plant. We are planting a new church, if you didn't know, in the city of Gardner in the new year, and the Lord is already beginning to do a work. And maybe for you, you need to pray hard about 
being on that team that we launch out. Because it's a city that doesn't know Jesus. And we've been praying for them and we'll continue to pray for them. But maybe, friend, you need to go. I'd encourage you to talk to Jonathan Drindle uh, in the comments after service if you'd like more information on that. I'd also, also like to take a moment to talk to the person who doesn't know Jesus. The person who would not call themselves a Christian. Or who may call themselves a Christian, but you're like, I don't know if I get this whole Jesus thing. Friend, today maybe you've just learned God's heart and that it's for the salvation of the world through Jesus. Maybe today you've heard the gospel for the first time, that God sent Jesus to die the death that you deserve for sin and to rise and offer you life if you have faith. Maybe you've bought into the lie that you're the kind of person that the gospel's not for. Or maybe you've been led to believe by someone that you are the kind of person the gospel's not for. Let me encourage you this morning and clarify something for you from the text. Friend, God, friends, God's heart is that all people, including you, would be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth that sets us free. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. There is life for you in him if you believe. And friend, generations have prayed for you from the Ephesian church to us today, maybe without even knowing your name. And we would want nothing greater for you than this, that you would find life in Jesus. And so the call for you is to repent of sin and believe in Jesus as the only way. Friends, for all of us, again, the heart of the Apostle Paul, the heart of the God of the universe for his church, his people, is that we would pray for the salvation of all people. Church, we would pray for the salvation of all people. That's our purpose as the church. That's God's blueprint for prayer in the church. That's what we must be about. Here in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to respond through communion. So over the next few minutes, the band is going to come up and we'll reflect as they're playing. And maybe this is the time that you need to do business with what the Lord is prompting you in this morning. Maybe you need to repent of something. Maybe there's someone that you need to spend some time praying for. And then as you are ready, friends, feel free to come up to the front. Again, communion is for those who are believers, who are Christians. Um, For the non-Christian, I would encourage you to reflect on the gospel. Reflect on what you heard this morning. For kids, check with mom and dad before you uh, come up and get elements. And then just lastly, by way of just some simple instruction, each section actually has its own table in front of it. And so if you... If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.